I'm Lula. And I'm Jude. And welcome back to Just Friends. Yay. Um, today we have a very special episode. I'm like trembling, to I be know. honest. Okay, dude, your okay. introduction. Um, oh my god, okay. Oh, okay. William Derezowitz is an American writer, literary critic, and former professor of English at Yale. He is the author of several books, including Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite, and The End of Solitude, Selected Essays on Culture and Society. He's known for his critiques of contemporary culture and education, and his writings have been featured in publications such as the New York Times, The Atlantic, and The New Republic. And today, we have the honor of him joining us today on the Just Friends pod. Welcome. Yay! Thanks. Uh, this, this was really fun. You guys are really fun. I'm oh, looking forward to this. No, us too. We're, we're freaking out. We're trying yeah. to contain the excitement. Okay, it's not no. that, yeah. I read Excellent Sheep over Christmas break. And it yes. was the book that like brought me so much calm and joy. And like, I've not read such a powerful book. So both, I really encourage you all to read it because Lula recommended it and yes. I listened to her and it was a good recommendation. Yes. I was required to read a few chapters from it for my ed studies class in the fall. And I was like, Jude, if you ever feel invalid in your feelings about Yale, you need to read this book. And the rest is kind of history. Um, do you want to like start off by just kind of giving an introduction of like what you taught here at Yale, like what you, like what prompted you to write Excellent Sheep and anything like just the, that background in general? Oh yeah, absolutely. The book completely grew out of my experience teaching at, at Yale. Um, the whole, as I was here for 10 years from 98 to 2008, I taught English Lit. Um, more specifically, I taught English 129, if that's what they still call it, the sort of Western great books course and courses in modern British lit, a, a modern British uh, novel lecture that was pretty popular back when they were still English majors. I take it that's not a thing anymore. And um, I'm joking, of course, but <laughs> I think there are a lot fewer than there were in 1998. There are. It's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... so Throughout the decade that I was at Yale, and I was, I was the kind of professor, which as you may know, is not the common kind, who really liked to talk to students in an open-ended way, yeah. in office hours. Sometimes they would drop by not in office hours. Sometimes they would drop by two years after I taught them in a mm. first-year class. Um, I'm still in touch with a lot of students even though I left 15 years ago and I'm friends with a number in an active way. Wow. So I was that kind of professor and, you know, a lot of students, well, a lot of students, they, a lot of students, I, I, what I'm struggling to, to try to say is it's not that they had the kind of more um, articulated critiques of, Yale that you might have reached and certainly that I talked about in the book, it's that they, you know, either they felt like they didn't fit because they were kind of like intellectual seekers right. and had come to school really to learn. Yeah. And they felt that the institution was not uh, friendly to that yeah. and that their peers also kind of thought it was weird. Yes. Um, and then... And for some, for some students, it was just kind of about uh, uh, what, what they wanted to do with their lives, you know, sort of pursuing what they wanted to do with their lives if it wasn't one of the four things that you were supposed to do. If it yeah. wasn't consulting. Cons <laughs> yeah. cons consulting, finance, medicine, law. And now, yeah. since then, there's a fifth, right? There's tech. Yeah. Right? Huge tech. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. It's, you know, the comp sci major is sort of probably what economics used to be at this point, I'm guessing, or maybe they're yeah. both. Yeah, right. Exactly. They're, they're both yeah. very populated. Yeah. 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 yeah so, so students talked to me about this and I also just saw them struggling to figure out what they wanted to do with their lives. They just seemed kind of directionless. Mm -hmm. And I felt like the whole system was, um, was actually inimical to deep intellectual engagement, you know, yeah. as I came to see, put it to myself, it's like students thought that 
like being an intellectual means doing your homework. Like if you've done, you know, it, it's sort of bounded by the limits of the course. Totally. And grades a lot of the time. <laughs> yep. It's like that's the marker of success, how well you're doing at Yale. And one thing that I think Lula and I have talked about is just yeah. how much we long for like the like intellectual play. Yeah. Like I think that like I want like a teacher that will sit with me and like be like you and have open-ended conversations where I get to like play with ideas and like explore my own mind, my own thoughts and everyone else's mm -hmm. rather than like read a single like paper and then like take a cue set on it or something. Like right. it's it's a lot more like kind of like jump as you've re like referred in your book like jump through the hoops for success yeah. rather than like just run and just play. Yeah. And I think it's you and I've talked about this a little bit, but I also think it's a shame that it really depends on your major. Honestly, like I'm, yeah. I'm a sociology major. So a lot of my classes are like smallish seminars and I can usually form some type of relationship with the professor. Um, and you're in mostly lectures. You're a cog sci major. Yeah. I'm cognitive science. Yeah. And there's a lot of at least intro lectures that I have to sit through and like, they're interesting, but like, it's not, personal and I'm like a relational person like right. I need connection to sit down with someone and talk, talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you know I was I majored in what, what basically became that field right it, it was mm. my major was biology psychology it was a okay. new hyphenated major this is the early 80s now so they actually didn't have anything to teach us yet they really knew very <laughs> little my point though is that you know as I guess with you I had to take you know physics, chem, calculus, biology, and psychology. And right. it was all large lectures. It yeah. was just completely. And then when I finally got to like the senior seminar, it was actually a graduate seminar with the guy who was advising this very small major. He, he just had no time for his students at all. He was the most unfriendly person you can imagine. Ugh. I mean, he was my advisor for two years right. and I never had a conversation with him. Uh, he was a young, academic who is doing what young academics and especially but also older ones are supposed to do which is just focus a hundred percent of their time on their research and give students as little as possible yeah i remember there was like a quote in your book about talking about how why the professors don't want to strive for greatness because that looks like they're not they're spending too as much teachers. time on teaching at, yeah as teachers. like they'd rather be like great at research and get just mediocre teaching um and that's just crazy to me. Like, how are we incentivizing yeah. at these incredible institutions not good teaching, just fine teaching? Yeah, it's this beautiful innocence that college students have, <laughs> uh, especially at when the ones who go to research universities. It's mm -hmm. different, although maybe not as different as you think at liberal arts colleges. But this innocence, which says, especially at Yale, because I went to Columbia and Columbia is different. They, it's very clear the institution gives, doesn't give a crap about you as a college student or quite frankly any other kind of student but but Yale College in particular you know is this very sort of uh it 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 it, it is made to feel like the center of the university mm -hmm. which can be a really good thing in a lot of ways but it is so not the center of the university and that's the innocence that college students don't understand it's it's right. sometimes broken when a really popular uh, professor is denied tenure Mm -hmm. And students realize, like, it's not about whether they're popular. That's right. not the metric at all. Which is so, crazy. yeah. Yeah, it's an insane metric. Um, I kind of want to segue a little into one of my big questions for you um, or ideas that I had when reading the book. So Jude and I, as we have told you, and we are very clear about this, are very critical of Yale. <laughs> Um, a lot of, and not just Yale, but I think what we yeah. see at Yale and then how, you know, it's part of the it's bigger not different. system. It's, it's not different yeah. from any other comparable institution. Right. Exactly. And there are a lot of times when I will complain to my parents about something or other that has to do with Yale and in a kind of joking way, they're like, well, why are you even there? And <laughs> it leads into all these interesting discussions of like, about the podcast, how Jude and I are very, very honest about what we love and what we really, really struggle with here and existing here and that we see our peers having trouble grappling with. And 
I guess I'm just wondering your experience with being like, obviously with this book and it sounds like with conversations with your students, critiquing such an institution that's like really supposed to be a privilege to be at. Like what's universally understood is like, you've kind of made it or you're at like one of the top schools. Like if you say the name, people know it and you're kind of, you know, pointing out a lot of the systematic fundamental issues within it. Like how, how right. did that come out with the book? Right, right, right. That's a good question. It, and it enables me to get back to the, to the narrative of how the book emerged that yeah. I interrupted myself. That was totally my <laughs> fault. No, it's but, okay. Um, so, so towards the end, at, the last year I was here, and really just for coincidental reasons, uh, the last year I was at Yale, I finally put this critique that I had been compiling into the form of an essay. It was actually, it originated as a talk at St. A's that mm. a, a couple yeah. of my former students uh, invited me to give. Um, and at that time, I called it the disadvantages of a Yale education. Mm. And then I got, it was published in the middle of 2008 uh, by a literary quarterly under the title, The Disadvantages of an Elite Education, because, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's the same thing. Right. Um, <clears throat> the reason I called it The Disadvantages is precisely because to do with what you just asked. Because everybody understands that there are enormous advantages to going to a place like Yale. Right. And that's why, <clears throat> that's why kids kill themselves. It's one of the big reasons kids kill themselves to get in, mm -hmm. that parents push them to get in. There's also obviously a, a lot of status involved, but I mean, that's really one of the advantages. And then all the doors it opens up, which it really does and make, you may know, you make connections and, uh, you're set up for wealth and status and maybe some power, if depending on the field you go into. Mm -hmm. um, the point of the title is, okay, but this comes with disadvantages. And they're the ones that I was talking about when you asked me before. Mm -hmm. um, the piece came out relatively small literary quarterly, I, I didn't think, I thought if a small audience would read it and they'd be mostly fellow professors who might recognize. And instead, right. it did a thing that I didn't know was a thing yet in 2008, <laughs> which was it went viral. Right. Yeah. Fast. Yeah. Fast. And interest, two really interesting things about that. One is that <clears throat> there was a sharp upward curve for the first few weeks, and then it started to go down, and then it would come back up again. And that happened for years, meaning that there was this continued interest and people, the readers were passing it along to others. And the other interesting thing was that I, by like day five, I figured out who those readers were. Hmm. It was students at places like Yale, right. students and very recent graduates, I would say, but from all over the, the elite college system. The, the most striking thing, I mean, it was great to have my perceptions confirmed. The big thing that I had missed the first time, even with 10 years of teaching, even with many hours of, you know, office hours and conversations and so forth, is the mental health aspect. Hmm. How miserable the system, which of course is centered on the admission system, how miserable the system makes the people who go through it. I still haven't answered your question. No, so, I think you have. <laughs> so, well, you uh, you asked me about how people react. If you want me to yes. keep going, or you want to ask yes. another question, no, I, no, I, I want, love, I want to. Yes, you can feel okay. free to keep going. Okay, yeah. okay. So, um, very quickly, actually, I was invited to give a talk at Harvard that fall. So, the, it came out in June, and in October, a group of students had invited me to give a talk at Harvard, and a faculty member from Cornell who was like a you know, the, the faculty in residence at a dorm asked me to come and talk at Cornell. I actually drove from Cambridge to Ithaca over, uh, uh, it went, you know, in one day, <laughs> one, more, one morning to give the second talk. Um, and then more and more and more invitations to speak. Uh, it was always really intense. I remember that first Harvard one, the first one, 
and they had booked a room that they thought might be too big. And it was also the same night as the vice presidential debate uh, oh, between God. Joe Biden and Sarah Palin mm -hmm. in 2008. So there was a lot of interest. <laughs> and it was it was like a I think it was a small it was a lecture hall it wasn't that small I think it had about 150 seats overflowing mm. people sitting in the stairs people lined up at the back however long the event was supposed to go went way longer than that and then they let the audience go and we still talked for you know probably the whole thing was like three hours wow and that was that became typical right so I realized I had tapped into this incredible hunger and I got a lot of questions that I hadn't addressed and a lot of questions that I didn't know how to answer. And mm -hmm. I also realized mainly the question, what the questions took the form of uh, what can we do about this? Yeah. Especially I mean, as individuals. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I realized this needs to be a book. And six years later, uh, six years later, the book came out. Uh, Jude, you, Unlike any other podcaster, you pronounced my name perfectly. <gasps> Yay! We tried so hard to figure yeah. it out. <laughs> but like many other podcasters, you got tired before you got to the end of the subtitle of Excellent Sheep. Oh, what? Oh, no! No! Everybody does that. Um, <laughs> it's Excellent Sheep, the Miseducation <gasps> of the American Elite. And, and the Way, and to, the way a to a Meaningful life. life, right? So that's the Terrible. big piece that I added. Right. Uh, the original essay was the critique. And, and this was the big piece that I added. Hmm. Um, so the book came out in 2014. And yes, it got a lot of attention and a lot of attacks. Mm -hmm. And the attacks, they came, if, if they didn't come from inside these institutions, they came from people who had gone through them and were in the media or whatever it is. Um, first of all, you know, some people think it's absurd because they can't possibly imagine that there could be any downside to this whole yeah. elite college system. Right. Um, some people from the institutions were extremely defensive, um, as you can imagine. Totally. Um, I did a book tour in, in September where I hit um, most of the Ivy Leagues, uh, the ones between Princeton and Harvard. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Harvard event was just ridiculous uh if anybody you know I mean, there's a there's a video of it and it was just they put together a panel of five professors and two students to attack me in front of mm. an audience of 400 people whoa yeah this is the mahindra center for the humanities and it was in 2014 and if anybody really wants to yeah. and do you look at what this looked like do you I had a friend. I had a friend uh, who has nothing to do with academia. Who said, who who watched it and, and then said to me, "I thought you had touched a nerve. Now I realize you've severed an artery." Oh my God. <laughs> and that you know that that's that's part of what the reaction was like. Right. I'm curious. Like, do you think the reaction was political? And like, oh, we need to like, we don't want our like image to be tarnished. Or was it more that like you struck a chord that people just didn't want to see? Like you said the truth that no one wanted to like actually acknowledge. Well, uh, it was both. I mean, I think my ability to tarnish the reputation of the Ivy Leagues is very minor. <laughs> but I do think there was some of that. Um, I absolutely, the, the big piece also, listen, also, I'm saying that, you know, in some ways, elite college students aren't all they're cracked up to be. And people right. who have degrees from those institutions, let alone teach it, one of them, do not want to hear that. Um, but, but the big thing about the truths that people didn't want to hear. And the, I think the biggest thing people didn't want to hear is now something that's become, you know, undeniable, because, which is the mental health piece. Yeah. I mean, Yale just got sued completely about specifically their mental health solutions that are basically non-existent i mean that's like a whole other <laughs> series to I do mean, but yeah people wait on the wait list for like three weeks to see a, like a therapist for a single day and, and then like, they get ghosted yeah by them. and it's just yeah these oh kids are struggling yeah. these kids are like people are people oh. are really lost i think that this that is... was like directionless like i think that's that is the word that i keep coming back to yeah well and and you know, several, this has been exponentially multiplied by at least two huge factors since the book came out. And one is the smartphone. Yep. 
And the other, of course, is the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. One thing that I kind of would like to move into is I think, as you mentioned, when you release this, it does strike a chord with a lot of people. And like a lot of people needed this, including myself. Yeah. And I remember like reading the book and feeling so free and ready to just like do what I want and like go and feel like, oh, maybe I should go take a gap year. Like maybe like I felt like the world was mine again, which I haven't (sighs) felt for a long time. (sighs) And then I come back here and I'm here and I feel different, but I'm still doing my QSATs and I'm still planning on being here for four years. And I think this is what you're talking. Why are we here at Yale? Well, that's a good question. And then we just kind of like move on and we like still wake up and go do the classes. And like, I guess the thing that I struggled with the book is like, how do you like stay in that mindset? How do you say, you know what? Like I care more about the happiness that I'm going to get from doing what I love and living a meaningful life when like everyone around you is swimming in one direction and it does feel pretty easy to just swim in that current. Yeah. Well, first... The first thing to say is that it's not easy. It's not easy. Although the more you do it, you know, like any kind of habit, um, uh, the easier it gets. And the more consistently you do it, the easier it gets. Um, I think it helps a lot to have uh, the support of others. Like you guys have each other. Um, But let me also say, I, I just heard this from someone who um, was who went to Yale. I think she graduated in 2013 and then Harvard Law School and big job at a big corporate firm. And, and now she's left the law and transitioning to being a writer. But she had done all those things. And her first book is about big law firms like the one she worked at. Hmm. And she said, um, I'm a big believer in you do what you need to do so you can do what you want to do. Mm, yeah. So, and I try to emphasize this in Excellent Sheep, that it isn't just like, oh, you're liberated now, go do what you love and everything will be great. Mm-hmm. Because you need to support yourself. And maybe mm-hmm. at some point you want to support other smaller people, whatever <laughs> it is, you know. Yeah. So, and I think what matters much more is, do you know why you're doing it? And do you feel motivated by that purpose? I know the word purpose is overused, but it's probably still the best in this context, mm-hmm. right? That's the difference. I mean, I, can, I can't look at the outside from two students, one of whom is like grubbing problem sets, or both of them are grubbing problem sets. They're sitting next to each other in the library, and one is doing it because their parents, you know, push them towards a kind of success that they don't, you know, and one is doing it because they're really excited about what they're going to do with their STEM degree. Yeah. And that's really what matters. So you may need to make, I don't know how you feel about your major now, and you may need to make choices that, you know, and the, and the, and the, uh, the logistics of it might be a little complicated at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a like, complex, like, just discussion because there are, like, there are things that people need in life. And, like, I think that, like, I think you talk a lot about it in the book. Or, like, I have the quote here. <laughs> Because it was such a good quote. The, re- <laughs> the real problem, <laughs> the real problem is that Yaleys and our peers now feel like they're wasting their degree by taking a job that doesn't pay a hundred thousand dollars the first year or ever. I think consulting, in particular, appeals to this perverse fantasy that most Ivy League lead, League League students harbor deep down inside, which is that someone should pay them for simply having gone to Yale or Harvard or wherever, and just like. I think that like success and the way that I view success as well as like just the in general larger Yale community that it's like it keeps instilling the same values of success, right? And that like what colleges should be doing is like reteaching you what success is and challenging you on what it means to be successful and how you want to live your life. But they don't. <laughs> and wasn't that quote from a student? Yeah, also, from a Yale like student. 20-ish years ago and it's basically the same exact thing you and I talk about now which I think was one of the the craziest parts about reading the book I was just like this is literally if someone took my brain and put it on a page because the end of the quote you know few people have the balls to walk away from that and that's very true today that very few people 
are, I mean, I think gap semesters are increasingly common for sure. And a lot <laughs> of them are mental health related. Um, but then you come back. Yeah. And then where do you go? <laughs> yeah. It's just the way you guys say you've both now each said that. And then I came back or then you come back. And just the right. way you said come back, it's like <laughs> the doors of the prison cell are like, you know, clanking behind you. Oh, God. Which it doesn't feel like. Like, I have to say, I really do not see myself at a school other than Yale. I guess I can share this a little bit, but like all of my friends really go to art school. Like I went to public school. I did not go to a school that was like everyone's striving for the Ivies. I'm from like a very small artsy town and the huge majority of students go to a conservatory type program. Um, and so it's interesting to be like, you know, my internal conflict is basically doing this or like focusing on music at college and I've kind of decided like if I were to leave Yale I would not go to school I think and pursue that and so which is different from your yeah, internal well, debate right very like I kind of had a very different I like went to a very preppy high school kind of many of the kids went to Ivy Leagues and it kind of was just like programmed into me like yeah like work really hard get good grades like I was so obsessed with grades in high school and like was like okay like next thing like my sister went to Yale I was like okay like I guess I'll go to Yale now like it just yeah. kind of like I didn't even really think what it meant like uh, and and it's very it's different and now I think I'm having this moment where I'm here and I'm like okay like I did everything that I was supposed to do I jumped through all the hoops and it's not all of a sudden easy like it's not like life is incredible here like I don't know how much I'm loving like in, not all my issues are solved right and like maybe i need to rethink about what it means to be successful and like yeah and yet it's scary to to look at that and question your reality it's very scary it, it's kind of vertiginous right you sort of feel like the ground falling out from under you um you don't realize that after you finish jumping through the hoops to get into yale when you get to yale there'll be another vista of hoops to the horizon or maybe you can think of it, you know, when you hike up a hill or up a mountain, there can be a, a false summit, right? It looks like you're getting to the top and then you just turn a corner. Right. Because this, this, this success thing never stops, right? I mean, and there are many, again, there, there are many adults who went through the system and have do work that's very meaningful for them, sometimes also high status and, you know, high income, and that's fine. Uh, that's good, but there are a lot of people who are who went through it and are really unhappy as adults, and they never, you know, I have that quotation from uh, William Fitzsimmons, who was was or maybe still is the admissions director at Harvard for you know a million years, and he talked about you know you meet these people, I think he was thinking maybe of alumni who come back, you know, who look like the survivors of a lifelong boot camp, and from information I've seen from surveys I've seen the occupations that report the lowest level of mental well-being of various indices of you know depression divorce substance abuse suicidality are law medicine and banking i don't know that they have surveys for consulting and tech <laughs> but you know so you just need to know it's not going to end unless you step off the conveyor belt and you know you're not going to get any happier <laughs> than you are right now if you don't you know find something that really motivates you now i wouldn't suggest that you guys transfer because you're happy at yale and you want to on some level you're happy you say you can't imagine going anywhere else i imagine it has to do with friends you've made and let me also say that a place like yale can be a great place to get a, a great education mm -hmm. but you have to flow against the stream and and kind of take take a more active uh, role in, you know, everything, make selection of major, selection of courses, selection of professors, but also what you do out, you know, outside of class and how you choose to engage your coursework and how much you load yourself with other responsibilities. Or maybe it's an extracurricular that's really meaningful for you, you know, music. Um, the resources are still amazing. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I'm guessing that there's still enough professors who maybe some of them have tenure and so they're at liberty to spend more time with their students but you know that those 
that those people can be found still. Um, it's kind of made me think of like in the very intro of the book, just because you were talking about like this importance of going against the current. Um, you know, the book starts with this mention of like the importance of being alone. And can I quote you? So yes, sorry. you may. <laughs> says we're on page two one day we got around to talking about the importance of being alone the ability to engage in introspection is the essential precondition for living the life of the mind and the essential precondition for introspection is solitude mm. that is one like that is kind of honestly what made me not put the book down besides everything about oh, wow. Yale I just think one of the things I've struggled with most and that I've noticed peers realizing they're struggling with is how to be alone here. And I think that's one I don't know about like um, 20 years ago, whatever, however many centuries Yale's existed, but definitely right now, like people don't even eat alone. Like we'll never be seen eating in a it's dining like hall alone. It's scary to take a table alone in the dining room like that's like it's which, socially which scary, it which shouldn't is crazy, be because i like eating alone exactly yeah like i think there's this strange like i mean obviously everyone is so busy everyone here overcommits to so many things extracurricular wise blah 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 but then there's the social element and i think like realizing the importance of being able to be alone with yourself i think is a universal college experience probably but i think it's like really difficult here or mm -hmm. i found it really difficult like that is one of the things that resonated with me the most just like and my friends have talked about like there will be times where we all have plans we all want to cancel because we're just like mentally exhausted and no one does <laughs> and i'm like guys what are we doing well i also think that on the extra layer on top of that is yeah. that the entire journey of questioning what is success and what life do I actually want to live is a very lonely journey, right? Like you do have to go and like question that and like look around and be like, wait, I don't want to swim in the same direction as all these other like salmon. Right. But at the same time, that's what we're saying is so hard and scary. And like we all run away from and pull out our phones and look at social media and just like we don't want to be alone. And I think this is maybe where the – you mentioned the book a lot of like um, moral courage mm -hmm. and like the idea of like experiencing envy for other people and like other people's success. And maybe that's one of the factors subconsciously or not that keeps people from like learning how to experience solitude, I think is like, but look at what everyone else is doing. Yeah. And obviously that's the whole through line of the current and having to go against the stream. But I don't know. I think what I struggle with is like, does the school have to change first or do the people have to change first? Which obviously can't really be answered, but I don't know. The loneliness thing is just really what struck me, I guess. Yeah. Um, I've never uh, heard students uh, seize on that in particular and mm -hmm. react so strongly to it. And as I'm, I'm sure you guys know, uh, that whole question of solitude uh, became a theme that I was also pursuing at the same time. So basically that original disadvantage of an elite education piece came out in the American scholar. Um, and um, which is that it's interesting. It's that American scholars published by the, by Phi Beta Kappa. So, hmm. um, and then an editor, you know, I mean, it's so, I mean, it's, it's really just a sort of literary journal, but it's, right. it's interesting. I just never, put that together. Um, but a, an editor at a publication called the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is kind of like the trade journal of academia and every, you know, departmental lounge will have a copy of the Chronicle of Higher Education. And he, he pulled out that, uh, that, so, that solitude, that moment about solitude in the original essay, which I then repurposed for the introduction to the book. And he said, can you talk, can you write, can you say more? Can you, can you write an essay about the loss of solitude, the decline of solitude? Mm -hmm. um, so I did it and it, and then it was, it's called the end of solitude. And then 
some faculty in the English department at West Point saw it and said, can you come and talk to our first year students, to the plebes about solitude? And I cooked up a talk called Solitude and Leadership. And Mm. that was the other big essay that went viral, right? That was like that and the disadvantages, maybe a somewhat different population, but um, like a lot of adults, like business schools and other military uh, educational institutions have, have used that essay. Um, and then when I was writing the book, I tried, I braided those two strands together and I talked more about, about solitude and the importance of it and how it's not the same thing as, as just being alone because you can be physically alone, but especially now in the age of the smartphone, right? You're not mentally alone or you can also be physically alone, not on your smartphone, maybe because it hasn't been invented yet. And you're me when I was your age, and I felt lonely a lot, which is normal. Yeah. yeah. But there's this other kind of response to aloneness, to the objective condition of being alone, that I called solitude. And it has different connotations and sort of, you know, monks and, you know, contemplatives and hermits and, and maybe artists. I don't know that we have that association, but, you know, the artist in their studio, you know, at their desk, you know, going deeply into their own mind. This requires and makes for solitude. And how do you find that? That space where you can go deep, right? It's it's I realized later that it's it's the 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 sort of subjective state that this involves is what um other people call a flow state. Which you know we've learned about uh, in Psych and the Good Life. (laughs) Yeah. Oh that course. That course is that course still being offered? I thought they discontinued it because it was too popular. Um, I think they may have stopped. I We took it, I think, the last time, right? Well, she taught it twice, and we took it last year, which was the second time. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. We have very different takes on that class. But, yeah, she did talk about flow. <laughs> <laughs> we can, yeah. Yeah, I, I, won't, I won't comment on the class just based on what I've read about it. But, but obviously, it does not need to be said that the fact that, that a class exists and that it is so popular, you know, is kind of says everything you need to know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, going back to the solitude piece, like, I've been, like, very interested in the idea of solitude, and I've been trying to, like, put myself in positions where I don't have as many stimuli. Like, I'm not walking around with my phone or AirPods, and I'm just, like, going on walks. And I guess, like, it feels good. I just don't really know, like, is the, would the... Like, is the practice in order to, like, figure out, like, I don't really understand why I'm doing it. And maybe that's, like, right there says so much. Like, do I need to really feel productive being in solitude and, like, jumping through hoops in solitude? No. But I don't know. It does make me feel uncomfortable, and I've been grappling with that question. (laughs) Right. Again, and first of all, let me say, everybody struggles with this. I struggle with this, too. I think it's harder for you guys, because you grew up with it. So you started to be conditioned much earlier. I was, I don't know, 50 when the smartphone, when I got my first smartphone. Um, but, but again, we struggle with all, we, everybody struggles with it. Um, and it, and it's, it's, um, it's about what you said that, you know, I'm not, how is this going to make me more productive? So we've all gotten to the point where we feel that, Every moment of our life has to be productive. And just the fact that it feels good. Now, again, I mean, this is not sort of, I'm not advocating mindless hedonism. <laughs> if it feels good, do it, as, the, they, as they used to say. Right. I, you know what I would say? I think there are different ways to feel good, right? And there's, you know, having a drink makes you feel good. And there's nothing wrong with that from time to time or whatever. But it's not the same f- feeling good. It's not that kind of sort of surface sensory pleasure, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's this deeper feeling, right? It's, it, it's, you know, you know, it may be a little different from what I'm about to say, but I think this is so important, especially because it's kind of has a certain stigma around it, mm-hmm. which is a fun class. Students yeah. used to say yes. that my classes were fun. Yeah. Now, sometimes the fun is that, you know, some lecturer in political science or history who's really polished his act gets up and waves his hands around and, you know, you think that he's a good lecturer, but um, it's a much deeper feeling 
And I think it's that feeling that you've been talking about of pleasure, of, of, of play, of freedom, of, um, didn't you say, Jude, at the beginning, like you feel like yourself again, or you sort yeah. of come back to yourself? Like kind of like feeding your like younger, innocent child. child. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and of course you can see how easily people would, would, you know, dismiss that. And like, you're not a child, you shouldn't play, blah, blah, blah. And of course they're idiots because that, that all that feeling, first of all, it's essential to creativity, but I think it's also essential to doing something that's very important for people your age, which is sort of figuring out who you are. Um, and you have to clear away all the habits and all the noise of just doing the hoop jumping. And because, you know, that's sort of the surface of who you are. But like, who, who are you when you're not doing that? Yeah. When you clear that away and you can kind of figure out a little bit who you are. And I think it speaks volumes that I feel like I need to project the hoops into the exercise of not having the hoops, right? Like, oh, exactly. Yeah, like I I feel so safe having hoops to jump in because that's literally all I've known growing up, like grades and then college and the next step that like I feel so, so overwhelmed and scared by not having any, which is, I guess, like the whole point is like learning to live that and like learning to embrace that. It does feel freeing. Like I enjoy, I love being alone and like having nothing and just literally being with my own thoughts. But it's yeah, it's, and it's 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 it's, it's okay. It doesn't mean that you're going to fall off the face of the uh, of the, <laughs> the, the the edge of the world, uh, you know, which it can feel like if you're not being productive, you know, at every moment. That the the first question they asked me at that horrible Harvard event, because you know there had been they had made you know Steven Pinker right the famous uh, Harvard. He was not there, but he had written a very snarky response to the book where he said, you know, you two, you guys talk us about the soul, the soul, mm-hmm. you know, we don't teach students how to have a soul. We don't know what that mm-hmm. looks like. Like, yeah, that's true. So the first question, <laughs> that language, Correct. that language had been, that language had been circulating. And the first question that some, this distinguished faculty member asked me was like, you know, it seems like you're just saying like, no soul left behind. And, um, you know, you're just, it, students are just going to read this and say like, well, getting a soul is just another thing that I have to put on my to-do list. Mm. And there was, you know, it's exactly what you just said. Like now I have to check off, like finding my soul, having a purpose. And I, I did not say this in the moment. I gave a different answer, but of course that that's the whole problem is that they, yeah. they can only understand things in terms of, another thing to put on my to-do list as opposed to this is the thing you do when you put your to-do list away for a while. Yeah. So crazy. I kind of, um, it reminded me of like, you know, you mentioned something how students come in and they're, you know, wanting to learn. And the book talks a lot about like, Yaley's is kind of like stem cells and like they have all this possibility coming in. There's something that my, um, there's like these two required classes for the sociology major that are taught by um, Phil Gorski, who's the chair right now. And in both of my classes that I've had with him, he's said how he always notices how students who come into Yale are so much less alike than when they leave. Like how everyone kind of, which obviously you touch on in the book. <laughs> no, I quote, I quote yeah. a Yale students saying that. Yeah. And obviously it's happening now. My teacher says it to us. He's like, beware. You know, it's kind of a cautionary little anecdote. Um, I really think that you worded it very well in the book when you say possibility becomes limitation. I think it's kind of, that was one of the things that like, give me a little like, Ugh, to the chest. <laughs> I just like, I remember last summer, like summer after freshman year, I was trying so hard to find an internship. And I was like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, it took me like getting home and seeing my friends from home, who, you know, were all in their like art endeavors, whatever. And they were kind of like, why are you trying to, why are you trying so hard to get some internship that pays whatever much? And then, and then I did it. And then I studied then film abroad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you so, still studied. I still studied. You still got credit. Cause but again, yeah. it's but again, 
Yeah. That's okay if you did it for the right reason. You shouldn't not do things because they're productive either. Right. I mean, that would be silly too. Right. I, I'm, it reminds me though, we were talking, so I were both planning on taking a gap, oh, not a gap, a study abroad semester. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we also both talked about traveling this summer. And like, I, mm. we both talked about how we don't feel like we deserve to travel this summer because we're going to be doing a study abroad <laughs> in the fall. But the irony is like, that's like, I'm going to be doing school abroad. It's going to be different. Like it's totally. a pretty crazy mindset to be in. where like, we don't deserve to travel. <sighs> we need help. This is, <laughs> um, if, if I would recommend one book to anyone who's listening, yeah, uh, it wouldn't be my book. My book would be number two. <laughs> okay. If, if you want to read about this stuff, yeah. the first one would be a much, much older book called The Drama of the Gifted Child. Mm. Mm, I've heard of you this You mentioned book. it in your book. Yeah. It was, even when I was writing the book in my early 50s, in my, sorry, my late 40s, um, and I had never read this book, even then, it was transformative for me. Maybe transformative is the right word, but it was very, it was the most powerful expression of what I had been going through because I was one of these kids too. And the clear, you know, the most powerful and the clearest, and it's like 120 pages. And a lot of it is she's, she was, she's a psychiatrist. And a lot of it is sort of like to her fellow psychiatrists. So the real part that you need to read is like 20 pages. Mm. And she talks about, and, you know, gifted, I mean, well, gifted in the sense that we now say gifted and talented, right? So in the sense that you guys are all gifted, the drama of the gifted child, and the drama of the gifted child is that their parents load these expectations on them, that, and approval becomes a substitute for love. And when approval is withheld, you feel like your parents don't love you if you don't get, and then it doesn't even matter what your parents do, or even if they're still alive. But if you get the, an A minus rather than an A or a, the adult equivalent, you feel worthless. Mm. And when you get the A, you feel like what your parents always told you you were, which is the most special human being in the world. Mm. And you cycle between grandiosity and depression. Mm. And, you know, that, you know, meaning worthlessness, right? Like you said. Right. But, but listen, listen. You can... You can help claw your way out of this. I mean, I think once this is implanted in you, it's something you always deal with and struggle with, including me. But it is, first of all, so much better than it was before I became aware of this and realized that I needed to sort of do something about this. Mm-hmm. Um, but also so important in terms of like, you know, figuring out what you want to do with your life. Right. No, yeah, it's like a very scary thing. And yet I'm also very happy. Like I'm asking these questions now and not like later in my life. Like I want to be like figure, I want to be happy. I want to be living a meaningful life as for as much as my life as I can, right? Like I'm glad that we're grappling with this early, even though it is hard and scary. Yes. And for a lot of people, it comes up later. The ones who don't do it, it'll come up in their forties. It'll be part of the midlife crisis, Mm. you know? So, yeah. Yeah. I think this kind of mm-hmm. brings us so into too. this. <laughs> um, Jude and I have a little debate about this um, that has to do with your book. And I'm, I'm curious on your take. Um, mm-hmm. When we first talked about it after you finished reading it, you were like, ah, oh, I wish I read this before coming to Yale. Like, I wish I read this right out of high school. And I was like, I don't. Mm-hmm. And I'm I can't really articulate well why we have this difference. I think I I think speaking on my experience, because mm-hmm. I think I understand yours better, but speaking on mine, um, I think I definitely came into Yale more on the ignorance is bliss side of things. Um, just because, you know, I didn't really know anyone who had ever gone to an Ivy. And I didn't have anyone to talk to about it. And it was very like, I applied to Yale. Yale was the only Ivy I applied to. Every other school I applied to was a music school. And I applied early. um, Because I was like, well, if I get in, this will be crazy and I'll go. Um, And then I got in early and kind of withdrew and stopped all these other like plans that I had going. And I don't think... I think that if I read the your book 
before coming, I would have had a lot, a lot, like a much more difficult time deciding that I was going to go here instead of, which I'm not saying is bad. I think it's probably good. I probably should have been questioning a little more. Um, but I think just having never talked to anyone who went to an Ivy, I really did not know what, at all what to expect. And I don't know. I kind of want to hear your side of things, like why you wish you read it before. Well, I don't know. I just think that like for me it was that it was just so obvious like the next – like I would apply to these schools. If I got into like some Ivies, I probably would go to the Ivies. I ended up getting into Yale. My sister goes to Yale. Like it made a lot of sense. Like I don't – like and I think that although probably that path would have still occurred if I had read your book. Same. Thinking about what I really want from a college experience before applying – I think would have been good. Like I kind of like, like I, I, I chose Yale because it's Yale. I didn't like, I never even got a tour Yale other than just like visiting Coco. I loved my, like right. I loved visiting my sister, but it was like, that was kind of it. And like, it would have been probably worthwhile for me to be like, okay, well, what is my goal? And why am I even like, or at least start thinking like, why am I going to college? Why am I applying? Like it was such an expectation that every single person goes to college out of high school. And I don't, I was not really, like, I wanted to keep learning. It wasn't like I was, like, questioning should I be in college. But I didn't even really think about that as an option. Like, it was just, like, a, the next step. And so just reframing um, yeah. the conversation would have probably been worthwhile. And ironically, yeah. my school told me to read that book. They were, mm. like, like, my principal was, like, read this book before you go to college. And, like... No one really and listened, and I didn't, mm -hmm. right? And now I'm here being like, wow, I should have read that book. <laughs> so I think, I guess a summing up question or something. Um, you mentioned that you read The Gifted Child. The, the, dra the Drama of the Gifted Child, yeah. Drama of the Gifted Child in your late 40s when you were writing this. Yeah. Do you wish that you had, you know, engaged with something like that before college? Like, how do you feel about when you kind of when, encountered this, like, there's a lot of disadvantages of the elite institutions? Oh, yeah. I mean, this, this is why I wrote the book. I mean, I, I think I make that clear in the introduction is mm -hmm. so that people can have a better experience than I did. Listen, I think, I think ideally, uh, a college education, you know, I, I think it should center on the humanities Whatever you major in, I think there should be a humanities core because it's in humanities subjects that you can talk about these exact questions, you know, which you said nobody talks about. Why are, you know, why are we going here? Why? What, what should my life be about? Um, but ideally, um, that knowledge is going to be profoundly disturbing. I mean, it might change your you know, worldview about, you know, sort of larger issues, and that's disturbing enough. Mm -hmm. But the real disturbance comes when... It, you make, it makes you feel like you need to change your life in fundamental ways. And that's really scary. As I said, it's vertiginous because you have are, you know, more or less articulated in your mind some kind of scaffold that's going to get you through your life. And you put one step on the rung of Yale College. And then, you know, the similarly structured occupations, the, you know, the sort of meritocratic elite and how it's going to, you know, support you as you go to comfort and security and status and wealth. And when that's pulled away, you kind of have to start figuring it out. And it's really scary and it's hard and it's hard in a different way. And it's hard through your, often through your twenties or at least mm -hmm. through the first few years after college. But that feeling, and I always, I always tell students, you know, I don't, I'm not telling you what to do. If like you feel fine, if you feel good, because you're so passionate about doing tech, whatever, and that's a real thing, right. then there's nothing that you need to change. But, but if you're not, let me say, when I was in college in the early 80s, and this, this system was you know, just getting started, really it started in the late 60s, but it was still sort of gathering momentum. Uh, and you'd meet somebody who was majoring in anthropology or, you know, religious studies. And you'd be like, oh man, that's so cool. I wish, I wish I were doing that. And my impression is that's not the reaction those kinds of majors get anymore. No. It's like, you're an idiot. 
Why would anybody yeah. want to do that loser? You're setting yourself up for failure, like all these different. Yeah. 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 And I think that that's obviously a big factor in discouraging people from doing, doing it. Yeah. And I mean, I like to say, you know, at other schools, and it depends how much money you come from, but, you know, less elite schools, it's, I think it's a more fraught decision. But like, you guys are going to walk out of Yale with a Yale degree, and you already have all of the sort of desirable qualities that enabled you to get into Yale in the first place. You have so many options that other people don't have. Like, that's one of the privileges. Right. And... You're not getting rid of your privilege if you don't take advantage of it. You're still, you still have the privilege. You're just like throwing it away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Going back to one piece that we kind of talked, touched on earlier about the possibility, like you leave college, I think, with so much possibility. And yet I also think I, you've mentioned it within your book, and I also sometimes feel it, like being paralyzed by the possibility of like, and I, you mentioned this too, like, yeah like the, the paradox like, yeah like being so scared to like choose one path and choose one door because what happens about all the other possibilities and like what if i made the wrong choice right um yeah. and like i don't know like there really isn't i think an answer for that i think that's just something you have to sit with and be able to see um but it has definitely been something that i've been thinking about like why is it so scary to make a choice oh no no i what you're gonna i, I... I think this is a big thing and continues to be as you go through your 20s. And I wrestled with this a lot myself. Um, and it's interesting. I think one of the ways, as you might know, that the consultancies and I think the banks as well uh, sell themselves to undergraduates is that, you know, you're going to get skills here and then you, you know, you won't be eliminating any other possibilities. Right. You know, that fear of, you know, you're a stem cell now, you can be anything you want. And you want to hold on to that. And it's scary because you know that making a choice closes down all the other choices. Um, and something analogous can happen in your personal life, you know, when it comes to if you're somebody who, who finds a partner, a life partner for the long term, that that also is a closing down of possibilities. Right. But I would say in both cases, a couple of things. First of all, I managed to finally get past this by realizing that if I didn't choose one thing, this is sort of already later in my 20s. I wasn't going to be potentially everything. I wasn't going to be anything at all because I had to choose one thing. And the other thing, and I, I know I think it can be dangerous to sort of make people feel like they have to wait for this feeling, but, you know, both vocationally and in terms of who I made a life with, it's, you don't actually choose it. It chooses you. Mm. One of, the, one of the poems we read at our wedding, or at least considered reading, starts, um, every choice is the wrong choice. Mm. Because it shouldn't be a choice. You know, uh, I realized, I always knew that I wouldn't be happy until I studied English Lit. So a few years after college, I went back to graduate school, even though it was hard to get into programs. Um, and the same thing with the person. It's like, oh yeah, this is this is it. Again, I don't want to make people feel like if I haven't felt that, you know. But it's like it's like what that feeling like this is the right thing for me to do. Right. This is makes sense of my life. Um, this is uh, there's a great uh, recent book called Quarter Life: The Search for Self in Young Adulthood, but actually by a therapist I know who, who lives in Portland quarter life and and uh she talks about aligning you know your outer self with your inner self so that your outer self is an expression of who you are mm-hmm. right and it feels like there's a match there who you feel like you've meant to be you're you're meant to be i was going to ask for you to end with some advice, but I feel like you gave it to us. Yeah, I feel like that was pretty. <laughs> I feel that like, was pretty perfect. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, one last thing that we like to do with our guests is we just like to ha- end on like a very different, happier note. Yeah. <laughs> do you wanna? Do you want to like share maybe like something you're looking forward to this year or something you're looking forward to this month, whatever it is, and it could be as big or small as you'd like. Um. I'm going to New Zealand in a few days <gasps> yes. for a couple of weeks. And I'm really looking forward to that. 
And the reason I'm going is because one of my former Yale students is getting married. <gasps> oh my wow. gosh. And uh, yeah. Crazy. That is yeah. so exciting. Yeah. It's also so cool that you have those relationships with those students. I know. Like, this like, is what I'm looking for. I know. For. <laughs> this is what I'm looking forward to. Ah! <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. Yes. This thank you so much. Incredibly enlightening, great. to be honest. Selfishly, I yeah, feel much better. I'm so better. happy. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you. Be it was well, so nice guys. talking with you. Okay. okay. Um, we will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> Bye. Thank you.